passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. I'd like you to take out your outlines. Uh, as you do, I'd also like you to take out your Bible, turn to Mark chapter 2. We're going to be doing some reading in the text there in a few minutes. But while you are uh, getting ready and getting situated, I just want to ask you some questions. And these are just questions for you to ask yourself. You don't have to raise your hand or anything like that, but just talk about it in your heart. And here's the, uh, the first question. You know, uh, how many authentic relationships do you have with people who do not know Jesus? Do you have any authentic relationships with people who don't know Jesus? Another question, are you involved in the local YMCA or a local community organization where you can actually spend time rubbing shoulders with people who don't know Jesus? Are you involved in maybe a 4-H organization or something like that where you can go ahead and actually meet new people who don't know Jesus? And the last question is simply this. When was the last time you intentionally had somebody who doesn't know Jesus as a guest over your home? Just, just ask yourself that. See, the truth is that when we become Christians, it seems like slowly and consistently we start to cut out of our lives people who do not know Jesus. And many times we're actually pretty grateful when we see that happen. Because we start to say, you know, it's so nice to get rid of these non-Christians I used to hang out with because they were always having a problem in their marriage, and I don't have to deal with that. They were always having some kind of drama issue, and I'm thankful that that is no longer something I have to, to worry about. There's so much less problems now that I've become a Christian, I've cut out the non-Christians from my life, and boy, am I thankful I just hang out with Christians in, in Christian community. Now, to be honest, there, of course, there are times that when we become Christians, and there are times in the Christian life where we do need to cut out the influence of uh, non-Christians in our lives because we start to follow them and to, to be like them. But is that something we should do all the time and in every way? See, I think if Jesus was on earth today, we would be very uncomfortable with him and the way he lived because Jesus had such an incredibly low standard of separation from sinful people in society. And Jesus was often mocked. He was mocked because he spent too much time with sinful people and not enough time with the church people. You remember how the Pharisees, we used to say this? They said, they said it as a mocking way. Jesus is a friend of sinners. Jesus took their mocking contempt and turned it into a compliment. Why, thank you, friend of sinners. That's exactly what I want to be. Look what it says in Luke chapter 7, 34 in your outlines. The son of man came eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Apparently this means that Jesus, he went to parties, parties where they probably served hot wings, those big 
squishy pretzels, pepperoni sticks, you know, and maybe, maybe even they served beer at the parties that Jesus went to. Now, most of us would not like the company that Jesus kept. We would not approve of the parties that Jesus attended. Now, Jesus, though, he wasn't a glutton. He just happened to go to places where there were gluttons. Jesus wasn't a drunkard, but he went to places where there were people who were getting drunk. Jesus didn't go to these parties on a Friday night because he wanted to join them in what they were doing. He didn't go to these parties because he was bored and looking for something to do. Jesus went to parties where there are these lost peoples, where, these were, where there were their sinners because he was on a mission. His mission was to save the lost. You can't save the lost if you don't know the lost. So he went out of his way to build relationships with them. Luke chapter 19, verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So, Jesus was a friend of sinners. Jesus didn't condone sin. Jesus didn't participate in sin. But Jesus built relationships so he could rescue people from their sin. Now, we're the religious superheroes of the day. We studied them in previous weeks. Their name are the Pharisees. And Pharisee literally means to be separate. Separate themselves from sin. (laughs) They would separate themselves from sinners. In fact, there was no way that they would spend time with sinners or build relationships with sinners because they were afraid of being contaminated by sinners. Jesus, though, is the exact opposite. Did you notice that? In fact, this is one of the reasons that the Pharisees had such a hard time with Jesus and believing that he was indeed the Son of God. He would do miracles. He would do healings. He would cast out demons. He's probably the Son of God, but he spends time with, with sinners. We can't trust him. He can't be who he claims to be. In fact, look what it says in Luke 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners, and he eats with them. Notice how many of these tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to him. All were drawing near to him. A lot of sinners wanted to hang out and be with Jesus. Now, we've talked in generalities about sinners, But you notice in Scripture, it always lumps together tax collectors and sinners. Why does it do that? What is a tax collector? Why would they be so despised that they would be lumped together with great sinners? Those are the questions that we are going to answer this morning as we continue in our study through the Gospel of Mark. In Mark chapter 2, verse 13. So take out your copy of God's Word, which I hope you have open to Mark chapter 2. Stand out of reverence as we read it. Our passage today is chapter 2, verse 13 through chapter 2, verse 17. Follow along on your copy of God's Word. And he went out again by the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him. 
And he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. He said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call righteous, but sinners. That ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Now, last week, in the passage right before this, we saw the healing of the paralytic, the paralyzed man. And we learned that Jesus doesn't just heal bodies that are broken by sin, but he heals relationships with God that have been shattered by sin. Because Jesus didn't just heal the paralytic, but Jesus forgave the paralytic of his sin to restore his relationship with God. Now, in this next pericope that we're studying, we're going to see what kind of sinners that Jesus forgives. In short, he forgives great sinners. No matter what you have done, no matter how far from God you have wandered, through Jesus, you can be forgiven completely and totally forgiven and restored into a relationship with God, even if you were a tax collector or a great sinner, because Jesus loves sinners. Now, our study as we go through the text is going to fall under these four headings. First, we're going to look at Jesus calling Levi. Then we're going to look at Levi's strategic party. Then we're going to see how the religious people didn't like the company that Jesus kept. And then we'll finally see how Jesus didn't come to pander to the religious, but he came, he didn't come to, excuse me, he came to save the saints, not to pander, excuse me, came to save the sinners, not to pander to the saints. I got all my S's mixed up. Hopefully it doesn't continue that way for the rest of the sermon. So let's go ahead and dive in here with the first point. Jesus called Levi. Verses 13 and 14. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he followed him. <clears throat> that first phrase, he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him. Remember where we left off last week. Jesus was, uh, we had seen, he had returned to Capernaum. He had started in Capernaum, hadn't stayed there long. Then he had immediately launched out on his ministry around the Sea of Galilee. He had been preaching and healing, casting out demons, but he had returned because he had become too popular. People were just coming to see him from everywhere. So he came back to Capernaum, sort of doing the stealth Jesus, undercover Jesus, most likely when he returned, he was in Peter's house, we learned. But as word began to leak out that Jesus was in town, people started knocking on Peter's door. 
And one by one, they began to fill the room where Jesus was. So there were so many people packed in that room to hear Jesus teach. It was like sardines packed in a can. No airspace left until a paralytic came along and finally had a drop in on Jesus. Literally. They couldn't get in, so they tore a hole in the roof, dropped him in on Jesus. Jesus healed him, forgave his sin. Now at this point, remember, the paralytic we saw last week sort of left. He's out running around Capernaum, and what do you think he's doing? Do you think he's quiet? He is telling everybody Jesus is in town and Jesus healed him. So do you think there are a lot of crowds coming? Yes, they're coming from everywhere. So Jesus is deciding to go easy on Peter's house. I mean, he's already packed the house. It needs a good cleaning at this point. There's already a hole in the roof. So Jesus says, you know, it's time to leave. He's going to go down to the Sea of Galilee. He's going to go teach by the Sea of Galilee, which, by the way, is a really good idea because there is no building that can actually contain the size of the crowds who are coming to hear Jesus. Incidentally, the Sea of Galilee, you remember, is not a salt water sea. It is literally a fresh water lake. It is like Big Spirit Lake, but even bigger. So he's down by the shore and he is teaching there. Now, here's the interesting part. The next thing I want you to notice. He is teaching them. The emphasis is not on him doing healings or, or, or miracles or casting out demons at this moment. Not that he doesn't do that and not that he never did that when he was down there, but the emphasis is on the fact that he was teaching I like to think of it this way. The healings and the casting out the demons, they're sort of like whipped cream. They're, you know, a lot of visual capture, but they're not really the substance. The substance is Jesus' teaching. Now, what did he teach? We learned that earlier in the gospel. Mark chapter 1, verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Jesus has been teaching, essentially, a good old-fashioned revival service. He's talking about people and their problem with sin. And the way to be forgiven of sin is by faith in him. Jesus is doing Billy Graham evangelistic meetings before Billy Graham. That's essentially what he's doing. And so he's having these evangelistic meetings. He's, he's down by the seashore because there's so many people coming to these evangelistic meetings and responding to these meetings He's done with the meeting at this point. He's going to head back into Capernaum, and we read this. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. Now, we read that, and we just skim right through it. So what? He talked to a guy sitting in a tax booth. What's the big deal? But in the ancient world... The fact that Jesus talked to a tax collector was unheard of. Tax collectors were considered the scum of the earth, the refuse of society. No self-respecting person would want anything to do with a tax collector. And Jesus didn't just talk to him, but as we see, he says, 
follow me. I want you to be part of my group, my inner band. I want you to be my disciple. I want to take a few minutes to expand on what a tax collector is because most of us have never studied this. And so you have to understand the historical background to be able to um, really appreciate what is going on here. First of all, in Roman society, you need to understand there are two kinds of tax collectors. There is what is, first of all, the general tax collector who collected your tax on your property, your state, your income. <clears throat> For information's sake, let me give you this. Income tax was generally kept at about 1%. Uh, property tax was kept at 10% of your grain off that land or 20% of your fruit and bond fruit and wine off that land. Uh, those tax collectors were called the Gabi tax collectors. And it wasn't really much of a problem because that was actually a very strictly regulated collection of taxes. There wasn't much corruption going on to that. So the first thing you know about the Gabi tax collectors is they were regulated. But the government also collected taxes on things like the transportation of goods, the use of roads, the crossing of bridges, there was import, there were export taxes. These were called the Machis tax collectors. And these were unregulated tax collectors by their government. So they became filled with corruption. That is very important to know. The easiest way to understand these Machis tax collectors is to think of going to Chicago and driving on a toll road. Anybody done that? And as you go through the toll road, you start to think to yourself, you know how much money it costs you to go on that, through that toll road, and you know how many cars are going through that toll road, and your head is doing the math, and you're like, they are making a lot of money. In fact, I really feel like they're pretty much ripping me off. Anybody feel that way? Yeah, okay. Get an amen on that one. We're all Baptists right now. Well, that is the same thing that people in the ancient world felt about the Machis tax collectors because they sort of made up their own taxes when you crossed their roads. And by the way, just like in our modern world, if you have a heavy truck with multiple axles, they charge you more taxes. In the ancient world, when you pass through a tax collector's booth for this kind of Machis tax collector and you were carrying a load, a heavy load, and you had more animals and more axles on your cart, they also increased your tax rate as well. You know, at this time of year, we're about ready to see those advertisements with the Budweiser Clydesdales pulling that, you know, heavy cart. We think it's really nostalgic. In the ancient world, they would have freaked out. Could you imagine the taxes they would charge to get that thing on the road? Because there's just too many horses. Now, earlier in our study of the Gospel of Mark, we've learned a little bit about Capernaum. Remember, Capernaum is the largest city on the Sea of Galilee. It's a city that is filled with a very nice harbor because most of the fishermen harbor in Capernaum. We also learned there are two major highways that go through Capernaum one of them being called the Via Maris, which is a Roman highway. So we learned also that the fishermen in the Sea of Galilee didn't just sell their, their fish here in Capernaum, but they exported their fish around the world. 
So the picture you get is these fishermen, they catch their fish, they get them on carts and they're salted and they go to pull it on the highway and guess who they meet at the tax collector's booth? Levi. He's the Machis tax collector in this part of the world. Now the way this worked is that actually, technically, Levi worked for Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas is the one who controlled this part of the world, and this is how they dealt with taxes. What you did is you actually bid to Herod Antipas how much money you would provide him in a period of time, say a month or a year. These are the taxes I promise to collect out of your, a, my toll booth if you give it to me and return them to you. So what happened was if you were going along according to a good rate, everything was going fine. If you weren't getting enough people going through your toll booth, you had to raise rates because you still owed Herod a fixed amount of money at the end of a period of time. But if you had extra amounts of people going through, guess what? It was all profit. It was all what you kept for yourself. And so this is what you have. You have this system that is unregulated by the government that somebody who's a tax collector has promised to provide a certain amount of money and typically they start to get sort of corrupt and they charge excessive amounts of money because they can change on the fly based on their income. Tax collectors were known for having thugs working for them, enforcers, protectors. Sometimes they would let you through if you didn't have the money to pay the tax, they would charge you an exorbitant interest rate that you'd have to pay on your return trip. A way to think about this is that Levi, as a tax collector, works for the Galilean Mafia. That's sort of a good picture of what is going on here. And so nobody wants to be on Levi's bad side. So how did the Jews treat tax collectors, knowing that's the way they acted? Obviously, the Jews hated them. Tax collectors were barred from synagogues. They were considered liars. They were considered robbers. Tax collectors were not allowed to be witnesses in the courts because they assumed they were untrustworthy and lying. If you were touched by a tax collector, you were rendered richly unclean. If a tax collector stopped at your house, your house was rendered ritually unclean. The Mishnah, which wasn't written at this time but came about later, actually says directly that you are allowed to lie to a tax collector because they assume he is lying to you. That shows you the level of corruption. Now, Levi is not just any tax collector. Realize his name is Levi. He is a Jewish tax collector collecting taxes for Rome from his own Jewish people. They would, have, they would have thought of Levi as someone who has sold his soul to the devil for money because he would be extorting his own race, making a financial killing on the backs of his own people. This is why tax collectors typically at this time when they were Jewish tax collectors, were literally disowned by their own families. Are you getting a flavor why uh, tax collectors and sinners sort of go together? 
Now, I don't want to get too much ahead of myself, but I do want to provide you some hope for tax collectors and the tax collectors among us. This story, by the way, is not just told in Mark. It's also told in Luke. It's also told in Matthew. But Matthew has a little different rendition of this story because instead of using the tax collector's name as Levi, it says the tax collector's name is Matthew. And from the very earliest of Christendom, people have noticed that apparently Levi and Matthew are actually the same person. Now, what happened? Maybe Levi changed his name when he changed professions. You know, you don't want people remembering your old profession name. But we do know this. If Levi and Matthew are the same person, the really neat part is what God does with Levi slash Matthew's life. He goes from a mafia crime boss background to being one of the great disciples of the Lord, being someone who writes one of the gospels written in our New Testaments. And I say this just to provide a little bit of encouragement. I don't know how far from Jesus Christ you have wandered. I don't know what you have done. But there is hope. God can redeem your life and use your life in ways you never imagined. If God could redeem and use Levi, like he did, and he ends up writing one of our Gospels, trust me, he can redeem and use you. The story continues. Jesus turns and says to him, as he passes this tax booth, follow me. And he rose and followed him. I admit, this seems sort of strange. We don't know that... Jesus and Levi have any kind of relationship whatsoever. It's just Jesus is walking by and turns and commands him to follow, and he does. So let me see if I can put some of the pieces of information together that are not written directly in the text. We know that Jesus has been preaching. He has been preaching the gospel message. And this message has been getting out everywhere. Apparently, Levi has heard the gospel message that Jesus has come to save sinners, even great sinners. That if you confess your sin and repent of your sin and trust in Jesus, you will be born again. This is the kind of stuff that Levi has heard. And Levi, and at least in his heart we know, has repented and trusted in Jesus. By the way, we know from last week with the paralytic that Jesus could read the minds of the religious people that were there in that room. The te- Remember the, the uh, Pharisees, and the teachers? He could read their minds. And I suspect that Jesus could read Levi's mind as well. He knows that Levi has been born again. And so when Jesus passes by, he can turn and say to him, follow me. And it's essentially saying, Levi, I know the change that's take, taken place in your heart privately, I want you to go public with that change right now. And that's what he does. He goes public. But what I want you to realize, though, is the incredible cost of Levi going public with his decision to follow Jesus. Remember earlier when Jesus called James and John and Simon and Andrew, they were in the fishing business, and it says they immediately left their nets and followed him, but they left the business, the family business, with their father, who was still in charge of the business. They could always go back to their fishing business. But what would happen when Levi leaves his tax collecting booth 
Is there ever a time he's going to be able to go back? The other thugs and mafia lowlifes in the uh, Capernaum area are going to instantly move in on his tax-collecting system. His relationship with Herod Antipas will be broken. He'll never be trusted again. This is one of those calls that when he turns to Jesus, there is no turning back from Jesus, and he knows it. Folks, sometimes that's the same kind of call that God gives to us, isn't it? Sometimes what happens is we've heard the gospel message and we've responded in our heart, but God does not just want us to respond with belief in our heart. He calls us to respond with complete obedience in our life. And sometimes we rationalize, but Jesus, if I actually change the way I'm living and what I'm doing, I can't go back. Where is my money going to come from? Where is my income going to come from? And we want to, I want to play it safe. Isn't there a way I can gradually work my way out of my sinful lifestyle into something more comfortable? And to that, Jesus says, follow me. Follow me here. Follow me now. Follow me right away. Put your faith in me and let me take care of the details of leaving your old life behind. That's exactly what happened to Matthew, to Levi. And sometimes it's exactly the same thing that he calls us to do as well. So Levi has followed Jesus, but he immediately has a very interesting way of doing that. Levi had a strategic party to introduce his friends to Jesus his fr- and to his new Christian friends. It says, and he reclined at table in his house, and many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. So Levi has left it all behind. He's burned the bridges. He's gone from being, it seems like, a very greedy man to all of a sudden a very generous man because the Holy Spirit is instantly changing his heart. And he says, I'm going to throw a party at my house, a party where Jesus and his people can meet my friends and my people. Remember, there's no good Jews in this group. All of them would have shunned Levi. The only friends he has are more tax collectors and more sinners. I like the way it says this in Luke chapter 5, verse 29, when it talks about this very same event. It says, And Levi made him a great feast in his house, where there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with him. I just want to point out, it says they reclined at table. Now, when you're eating in a hurry, you end up eating standing up, don't you? When you want to slow down, we start to sit down. And when we have a Thanksgiving dinner this week, we sit down. But in their society, when they had a Thanksgiving-style dinner where you're going to hang out for a long time, and talk with people and build relationships, you didn't sit down, you laid down. Literally, they put the food in the center, and they had people with their heads in the center, the feet were on the outside of a pinwheel, and you leaned on your one side, and then you ate with your hand, and you talked with your heads all together for conversation right next to one another. 
Now, I don't recommend you try this this Thanksgiving, by the way. But the point of this is what Levi does is throws a party that is not a quick party. It's an extended party to have maximum amount of conversation with his new Christian friends and his old pagan friends so they spend the maximum amount of time rubbing shoulders with each other. And his hope is this, that more of his lost friends can hear about Jesus and be born again. Think about who would have been over at Levi's house. The thugs, the car thieves, the drug dealers, the prostitutes. They are all there. Because Jesus is a friend of sinners. For all the good church people of the day, separate themselves from sinners. Now, here's an application. I want to pull this out for you. Jesus hung out with sinners so they could hear the good news. Jesus went to parties where there were sinners so he could share the good news. Mixer parties are evangelistic parties. And by the way, this strategy still works and this strategy still applies. When was the last time you threw a Levi party where you intentionally said, I'm going to bring some of my Christian friends over for a party and I'm going to bring some of my non-Christian friends over for a party and I'm not going to sit there and try and leverage any of this. I just want them to rub shoulders that the gospel may rub off of my Christian friends into my non-Christian friend's life in hopes that they would hear the good news of Jesus and be saved. When was the last time you did that? I mean, quite honestly, let's face it. Most of us go to 100% Christian Bible studies, 100% Christian prayer meetings. We have Christian doctors, Christian dentists, Christian lawyers. The guy who empties our garbage, we want to make sure he's a Christian guy because we don't want to... Uh, be around the non-Christian people. And in the end, we're destroying our opportunity to share the good news of Jesus because we're not rubbing shoulders. We're not being a friend of sinners like Jesus. Let me give you one easy practical application. I've heard many people say, you know, why don't we have a, a New Year's Eve gathering here at the church? And I'm going to tell you, we're not having one. We're not having a party here because I want you to have a party at your home. I want you to have a Matthew party. On New Year's Eve, I want you to invite some Christian friends over, and I want you to invite some non-Christian friends over, and I want you to serve hot wings. I want you to serve pretzels. I want you to serve every bad caloric food you can think of. Make it good. But the hope is that the gospel is shared, relationships are built, and people who need to hear Jesus begin to hear Jesus, not necessarily just through you, but through your friends. Let's look at point three. The religious elite didn't like the company Jesus kept. 
The scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And we've already described this, that the Pharisees are the group that literally means the separate ones. And this is the scribes of the Pharisees. These are the leaders of this group. Let me tell you how this worked for them. The scribes of the Pharisees had disciples that were being tutored by them. And they only allowed uh, certain people that were, how would you call it, the most elite, the best, the brightest, because eating in that society was not just consuming calories for needed nutrition. Eating in that society was a way of extending friendship and acceptance between people. So the scribes of the Pharisees only ate with the best, only ate with the brightest, only ate with the cream of the crop. That's the way society worked. And along comes Jesus, who is the ultimate rabbi, who everybody looks up to, and he's eating with prostitutes and car thieves and tax collectors and the scum of society according to their standards. And they cannot understand why he is doing this. By the way, Jesus didn't just get invited to these kind of parties and accept the invitation like what happened with Levi. He created these kind of parties. He made the invitation. Levi is a tax collector. But do you guys remember Zacchaeus? Remember Zacchaeus up in the sycamore fig tree? And the Bible says he was a chief tax collector. And what does Jesus say to him as he passes by? When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, uh, hurry and come down because I must stay at your house today. My house? Nobody goes to my house And look what the uh, religious people did when they saw this with Zacchaeus. And when they saw it, they grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. How dare he? Same thing we see in Luke's account of this very same passage we're studying this morning. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Grumble means to murmur under your breath, to talk bad about someone behind their back. I just want to ask you a practical question. This morning, I don't think anyone here believes what the Pharisees believed. But do you act like the Pharisees acted? Have you separated yourself from all the sinners in your world? Are the only people that you hang out with Christians? Or have you strategically built relationships people, with people that are lost for the purpose of rubbing shoulders with them, for the purpose of sharing the gospel with them? If you have cut all the sinners out of your life, We're in sin. We are. We need to repent. Because we're not acting like Jesus. We're acting like the Pharisees. 
desiring to be separate, desiring to be comfortable, and only desiring to spend time with people who are good enough for us. That's not the heart of Jesus, my friends. You see, Jesus came to save the lost, not to pander the saints. Verse 17, and when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let me just key in on this. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Boy, am I thankful that doctors like to spend time with sick people. Would you imagine what it was like if all the doctors did was get together in the doctor's lounge and all they did was hang out with other doctors and they said, I don't want to spend time with sick people. I could be contaminated by them. They would do, no, they would do absolutely no good. Doctors are there for sick people and to help make them well. Well, Jesus is the doctor. The sickness is sin. The cure is the gospel. If Jesus didn't hang out with sinners, nobody would be saved from sin if he only hung out with a bunch of other saints. And nothing has changed. Today, you and I are the doctors. We have the cure for the sickness of sin. It's called the gospel message. And if we don't intentionally make time to hang out with those who are sick in their sin, nobody will be saved. Nobody will be cured. Let me go ahead on the very end here. Let me just um, give you some applications. Number one, Jesus loves sinners no matter how far they have run from God. If Jesus loves and wanted as part of his group a tax collector a member of the Galilean mafia, trust me, he loves and wants you. Repent of your sin. I don't care where you have gone, what you have done. Jesus loves sinners just like you. And number two, Jesus didn't separate himself from sinners. He made time to eat with sinners and build friendships with them to share the gospel. Jesus accepted invitations to eat with people who were sinners like Levi and his group. He created invitations to eat with people like Zacchaeus and his friends. We must be doing the same. This means, number one, or A, get involved in a community activity where I can build friendships with people that need to know how much Jesus loves them. If you don't have any interactions with non-Christian people, you must get involved in a community activity. We have to find a way to rub shoulders with Jesus with people who need to know Jesus. And the next one, this holiday season, throw a Levi party. Have friends that don't know Jesus mix with friends that do know Jesus so there's opportunities to share about Jesus. And I say that, especially make use of New Year's Eve. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just want to confess that many times we have become a church full of practical Pharisees who separate ourselves from the lost, forgive us for that. I pray that we would see in this text, Jesus, your heart for sinners and the power of the gospel to save sinners. And that we would intentionally this week begin making relationships with people who need to know you. They may hear about you, about you, and be born again. 
We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.